sustainability simply means uh, the interaction or the interrelationship between environment, economics, and social justice. Uh, so uh, importantly, sustainability does not mean going green. It's something more than going green. Green is just one of the three dimensions of sustainability. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Okay, good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest who will introduce himself. Ira, please go ahead. Well, welcome to the podcast, everyone. Uh, I'm Ira Feldman. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, and uh, I guess the best way of describing myself is that I'm a sustainability professional. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with sustainability terminology, in my book, sustainability simply means uh, the interaction or the interrelationship between environment, economics, and social justice. Uh, so uh, importantly, sustainability does not mean going green. It's something more than going green green is just one of the three dimensions of sustainability. So with that basic out of the way, what does it mean? What am I actually doing as a sustainability professional? Uh, a lot of folks say uh, Ira wears many hats in the sustainability universe, and this is true. Um, I've cut across many sustainability domains, uh, including in terms of functional roles as an attorney, a management consultant, an international standards developer, a political advisor, uh, and uh, a university faculty member. So uh, I cut across all of those uh, domains, and I would like to think that I've made some significant contributions uh, and among other places, to sustainability law and policy, to sustainability in higher education, uh, and uh, in a number of other uh, realms. So, um, in 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 my thirty year career, uh, I've uh, I'm a lawyer uh, by training, but with a broad and deep interdisciplinary background mm -hmm. around the theme of environmental effects on human health, especially in urban areas. So mm -hmm. I won't go into all the different nooks and crannies that that encompasses, uh, but basically uh, that has uh, allowed me to become familiar with uh, everything from human biology and ecosystem biology to urban design and regional planning. Uh, and uh, I've 
had a career in major law firms, then at US EPA headquarters in Washington, D.C. Mm. As of now, I have my own um, interdisciplinary consulting group known as Green Track Strategies. I have a not-for-profit organization known as Adaptation Leader, which focuses mm -hmm. on climate adaptation and resilience. And then in, for sustainability and higher education, uh, I have a not-for-profit organization that helps university-level faculty understand what sustainability is all about, because as I mentioned at the outset, especially in the United States, too many people believe that sustainability is simply about going green, and it's a lot mm -hmm. more than Your interest was that purely, you know, some, you know, a little voice inside, or were your parents, was your family, were they also involved with these type of issues? I, I think I've really? always had the little voice inside. Mm. Uh, although my parents uh, were tremendous in that regard in encouraging me when mm -hmm. they saw that this is what I was interested in. Uh, they did everything to help me advance. Uh, those interests, um, whether it be in terms of books and other materials or going to special programs or going to, you know, uh, on field field trips, um, they were 100%, 110% behind me. And I would add that um, as I moved from childhood to young adult and while still in high school, um, I'm old enough to have uh, been around at the original Earth Day 1970. And so I helped run the original Earth Day program at my uh, high school alma mater. And uh, there were actually other students who were more into the environmental science and environmental policy. And I kind of came in through the back door. I was artistically gifted. And so they uh, asked me to do all of the environmental posters for Earth Day. I still have many really? of them in the in the garage. Okay. They're they're definitely yeah. collector's items. Um, but uh, this my uh, high school was a uh, prep school in Brooklyn called Poly Prep, and I've stayed involved with Poly Prep uh, to the point where today I am. Um, an advisor and uh, contributor uh, to their sustainability education program. And indeed, I, uh, because my parents were so supportive of my career in environment mm. and sustainability, I uh, donated a sculpture, a work of art uh, that is shaped like a globe uh, and donated it to the school as the the annual Polyprep Sustainability Prize uh, mm. for the student who has uh, the most potential to get into uh, the sustainability field. And so the that award is um, the Nathan and Estelle Feldman Sustainability Prize, named after my parents. Wow, what a, that's that's a that's a great story. That, that's beautiful. Um... Ira, you, you have done so many things, um, and but when you, I would like to uh, talk with you about your time at the, the EPA. How did you get involved? 
um, at uh, you know this this government agencies. And because I have a global audience, can you also explain that what the APA EPA stands for? U.S. EPA is the Environmental Protection Agency, mm-hmm. which is the, the federal level uh, environmental regulatory agency. Um, EPA has its headquarters in Washington, D.C., but it also has uh, regional offices in each region of the country. Uh, And then without getting too far into the weeds, those regional offices interface with state level environmental regulatory agencies, uh, which actually implement some of the uh, federal programs that's known as uh, delegation. Uh, I was actually recruited out of law school by a major New York law firm Hmm. to help them start an environmental practice group in New York, which is something that didn't exist in New York at that time. And so I jumped at that opportunity and joined a Park Avenue law firm. I stayed with them for two years uh, and then realized that to get the kind of training that I needed, I needed to go to Washington, D.C., which was still the really the focus of the environmental law and policy uh, field. I came down to Washington, D.C. for a couple of years with an even bigger law firm, uh, hoping that that even bigger New York-based law firm would send me back to New York at some point. Uh, that didn't happen because uh, I w- ended up one summer uh, apparently being bitten by a deer tick. So I ended up with uh, Lyme disease and mm. late stage Lyme disease can be kind of crippling if it's not caught early. Yeah. Mine was not caught early. And so I went on the, as we say in Major League Baseball, I went on the disabled list uh, for uh, the better part of a year. And when I was feeling about 80% back to full strength, I said, it's time to go back to work. I couldn't go back to work at a uh, major law firm at that stage because it really was a 24-7 type of environment. And I literally went with the, you know, idea that uh, you could get by doing a government job on a nine to five basis, which sounds a bit dismissive of government jobs, uh, uh, and some people do uh, try to uh, get through without uh, putting the extra effort in. But uh, it, the, the short version is that I decided to look for a position at US EPA simply because um, I had anticipated while I was in law school that I would spend some time at US EPA. In fact, it was a surprise to me that I started my career at a major law firm. Uh, I really didn't hadn't expected that. Uh, I was excited to join US EPA headquarters. I joined there as um, a RICRA enforcement attorney, which means hazardous waste regulatory enforcement. And very quickly, I gained a high degree of notoriety in part because I became the headquarters attorney on uh, three of the largest RICRA enforcement actions, hazardous waste enforcement actions ever. And they all settled for multi-million dollar uh, settlements. 
So with the reputation as a million dollar man, uh, I was then able to write my ticket uh, within EPA and I shifted from the enforcement side to the compliance side. And that's when I uh, really hit my stride and what I call the, the triple crown of activities at EPA uh, for which I, I was awarded a number of uh, EPA administrator medals. Uh, the three in brief, I developed the EPA audit and self-disclosure policy. I um, was the architect of EPA's first corporate environmental excellence program. And uh, back in the enforcement side, I pioneered the use of environmental management systems in enforcement settlements. These are all things that had never been done before. Uh, I remain very proud of that work. It all took place in yeah. the mid 90s mm -hmm. before. What makes it more remarkable is it was before there was an international standard for environmental management systems. In other wow. words, it was before ISO 14001. Uh, so uh, with that, <clears throat> all of that put me at the forefront of uh, environmental innovative environmental uh, regulation, and that gets into, you know, the use of uh, standards and soft law that I mentioned earlier. That's very impressive. Yeah, if you name one thing that, that uh, uh, you learned or experienced yes. that is really still uh, important for you, what you do today or how you look at sustainability, especially. And it would be remiss of me to not underscore how important the existing framework at EPA is. Uh, no one, certainly not me, no one is suggesting that that whole regulatory apparatus needs to be scrapped. We, we need to restructure things, but the basic air, water, and waste regulation over a 30 to 40 year period has led to tremendous improvement in the United States. And really, the US led the world for many years on uh, environmental regulation. Uh, that's no longer the case, although many environmental professionals in the United States still believe that it's the case. It's just that they're out of step with how far ahead lots of other um, developed uh, countries uh, have gone. Uh, there's a lot that the United States can learn from other countries right now, including, I'll just mention three, uh, the Netherlands, uh, the UK, and Germany. And I mentioned those three because those are the three countries that I decided to focus on as I pursue my late career PhD. Uh, so I am intentionally studying the sustainability policies of those three countries because I'm hoping that I will have an opportunity to advise on how we finally get to that next generation of environmental law and policy here. Right. Well, that, okay, that's interesting. Um, I I would like to, to uh, jump to uh, where you started and talking about sustainability in your definition, and then um, quickly uh, explain why your 
what I consider a holistic uh, definition of, of sustainability is the, the way to go and how that informs uh, you know, the work that you do and especially your, um, no, you pick one of the three, you know, where you explain what you do and um, yeah, elaborate on that to our listeners. So let's start with the definition of sustainability and why yeah. that's a better way to go. <clears throat> so I'm generally uh, distinguishing uh, a sustainability framed uh, regulatory policy um, regime in the United States uh, in contrast to the now 50-year-old, uh, the, the basic U.S. environmental statutes are all roughly 50 years old. The original Earth Day was 1970. Uh, the original statutes followed soon thereafter. So, you know, the, they've been around a long time. Uh, they've periodically been amended, but not fundamentally altered. And what that uh, has led to over the years is this uh, stovepiped approach to what would what we would call single media, you know, either air or water or waste. And that ignores the reality, uh, the physical reality, the ecosystem reality, that uh, all of these media, and when I'm talking media in this environmental policy context, I'm talking about air, water, and waste. I'm not talking about TV and newspapers. So the, when when you're talking about air, water, and waste, pursued in a systems approach that is known in the field as a multimedia uh, approach. And sustainability is be because of uh, its uh, systemic holistic approach, uh, its forward-looking approach, its multi-stakeholder approach, uh, at all uh, it would be much more effective for implementing um, a next generation uh, policy framework. I would still to bring you back to the definition of sustainability. Okay. Um, because, you know, your definition of sustainability is not only about environmental sustainability. You also mention economic development and social justice. Right. So those three dimensions. So if we as a world talk about sustainability, why should we look at uh, the issue from, you know, these three lenses? Why are they related? So I think the uh, the environmental piece I've covered well yes. in terms of the uh, the air, water, waste, mm -hmm. stovepipes. Uh, the economics piece, uh, the most important thing to understand in moving from an old understanding to a new understanding of sustainability is that for years, more progressive minds have suggested that it's just been wrong to view environmental compliance as a resource drain, that it was actually a win-win situation, uh, that there were benefits to uh, uh, being a good environmental citizen. And uh, if an organization were to adopt a sustainability approach, under the definition that I'm talking about, it simply means that they've 
accepted the mindset that uh, doing good for the environment is also doing good for business. Uh, and uh, there are numerous examples uh, of that. And you don't have to point to, you know, the fact that, you know, the, the fundamental fact that, uh, you know, any anything that amounts to a waste product is costing a company money. Uh, that's that's on the economics side. Obviously, there's a lot more that can be said about economics at the macro level, not just the micro level. Uh, but uh, the the social justice side, um, the reason why that's important to include in within the fundamental definition of sustainability, and this is I'll just add because we may not have time to circle back to this. This is one of the challenges faced by the Biden administration when they came up with their theme of climate and justice, which sounds great to almost all of my colleagues. Uh, what that failed to do uh, what was to include justice as uh, an, an, an incorporated piece of the whole framework. It's, it's still, if you're talking about climate, and justice, justice is still like an add-on. And a, a sustainability approach acknowledges that uh, social justice is just as core to what you're doing as the economy and the environment. And uh, take some time for people to wrap their heads around that, but the uh, looking at the negative uh, may help explain that. And in the Biden administration, they have a, a, the so-called Justice 40 initiative uh, where they're trying to direct 40% of all federal government funding to um, uh, disadvantaged areas. And it, it's been very difficult uh, to implement that program because there really is no consensus on what the right way is uh, to do that. Uh, it might have been smoother rather than trying to jam in that 40% uh, requirement as an add-on. It might have been better, I'm not saying stating for a fact, but I believe that if they had started by educating the public on what a sustainability framework meant and why social justice was um, uh, incorporated into that uh, as as a basic prong of sustainability, I think we might have been further along by now on uh, uh, environmental justice. Okay. No, I, thanks for that, uh, Ira. And, and um, I mean, just for for the listeners, I mean, to remind them or to point them at previous uh, guests from the, the podcast, uh, I have had a conversation with Pace Klomp from the Netherlands, who wrote a book, Thrive, where a number of uh, renowned uh, economic thinkers like Kate Reworth with her donut economics, you know, are, are basically alluding to what you also spoke about in terms of, you know, one of the reasons that uh, we already crossed uh, six uh, of the nine planetary boundaries is probably because, you know, our economic system is based on extraction 
only focusing on humanity, not about a balance between you know human beings and nature. And you know what what you are also referring to is you know when you want to make this world more sustainable for both humans as well as you know the rest of of nature, the rest of the planet, you need to keep those three dimensions in mind. And then you know. And right. you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, when I uh, do my introductory uh, explanations of sustainability uh, in my graduate level courses, uh, what you just mentioned, uh, the planetary boundaries approach and the Oxfam donut, uh, those have been tremendously influential over the past 10 years. And, you know, that is the kind of stuff kind of material that uh certainly my students come away with a new appreciation of sustainability i wish that we could mandate everyone on capitol hill uh taking a short uh primer on uh planetary boundaries and the oxfam donut because many of them and this is verified by talks that i give on capitol hill uh when I share some of the things that are common knowledge in the field. Uh, I have uh, members of Congress and their staff, you know, still more or less stuck in a mindset of 20 years earlier, and they just haven't kept up to up to speed with whether it's developments in ecosystem services or in understanding that, as I mentioned earlier, that other countries have more sophisticated environmental regulatory programs than we do now. Okay. That's okay. Let, let us, let us, uh, let me have you pick one of the things that you do, you know, your green tracks, uh, strategies, your adaptation leader work or your sustainability curriculum consortium, which one, uh, will you share with, with, uh, the listeners today? Well, they're they're all my children, and they're all uh, dear uh, to me. But I think that what makes sense is, uh, for purposes of today, is to just indicate what I'm trying to do with Adaptation Leader, uh, the not-for-profit, uh, and the mission of Adaptation Leader, simply stated, is uh, to raise literacy on climate adaptation and resilience. Hmm. Uh, why? you ask, is it necessary at this late date to raise literacy on adaptation and resilience? Well, uh, there's that unfortunately word again. Unfortunately, even though there's been a lot of attention paid to climate change over the past 20 years, and we have thankfully almost moved past uh, the period where uh, climate deniers have any leg to stand on, uh, even if uh, everyone agreed that climate change was a problem, uh, especially in the US, I would say to your international listeners, the attention has been almost exclusively paid to greenhouse gas reduction, which is the mitigation side of uh, the climate conversation. Uh, almost no one in the professional climate field in the United States over the past 10 years has focused exclusively on adaptation and resilience. It's certainly a much better situation 
today than it was five years ago or eight years ago. Uh, in many different ways, there's even an, 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 a professional society for adaptation professionals, but the capacity to deal with adaptation uh, is very low among professionals. And the literacy in the general public about adaptation is still virtually non-existent. I hate to sound alarmist on that, but the reason why I know there's a role for my not-for-profit is that th th there is a need across all stakeholder groups, across business, government, academia, uh, to elevate uh, the understanding of adaptation to where the understanding of mitigation has been all along. Because of one simple fact, uh, even if we quit carbon emissions, cold turkey tomorrow, uh, from everything that has been put up there since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, the climate is going to continue to change for another 100 to 200 years, even if we quit cold turkey. And so that means uh, we, we're going to have to adapt, and we don't know how. Uh, there are some good ideas out there, but uh, for anyone getting into the climate change space now, I urge them to pay attention to the adaptation side, not just the mitigation side. The, the, the two things that I'm doing with Adaptation Leader now, the two special initiatives or projects, one focuses on the failure of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, to include anything meaningful about adaptation in their proposed climate disclosure rules. And so we've been banging the drum, uh, particularly here inside the Beltway, uh, to get folks to realize that the proposed rule uh, and likely the whatever gets finalized in the coming months will still be inadequate with respect to adaptation. The second uh, initiative that uh, we are uh, championing has to do with the notion of receiving communities. In other words, communities that are receiving climate migrants. And in this, I'm not even talking about climate migrants uh, from uh, Africa or Europe or South America coming to the United States. That's certainly uh, an issue uh, and migration in general is a big uh, and controversial issue. The, the distinction that I'm making is, if you understand the science within the United States itself, there will be internal displacement of many millions of people. And no one, no one is planning for it yet. And we don't know exactly what the timeline for that is gonna be, but one uh, well-regarded study suggested that over the next 30 to 50 years, over 12 million people just on the East Coast will be displaced by sea level rise. That doesn't include the rest of the country or other climate impacts. That by itself uh, ought to be a wake-up call. And so we are uh, trying to develop a research and policy agenda for receiving communities. I can stop there. Okay. Clear. Um, I would like to, us to go to the second part of the conversation. And that's a little bit more rapid fire. 
so quick questions, quick answers. When we, you know, maneuver ourselves through a wide range of, of topics and, and uh, you know, short conversations. Um, you might know or you might not know uh, that this particular podcast is a spin-off of a 100-mile walk that I started in 2012. And so during COVID, I was not able to walk with other people. So um, I missed that. So I, I you know, started reaching out to, uh, to folks to virtually walk with me. Um, but the reason that I started to walk the 100-mile walk in 2012 is that uh, what I try to do is to uh, raise awareness and funds to end hunger, poverty, and injustice. Um, you know, so I walk within a week 15, 20, uh, 15 to 20 miles per day. Um, if you would be asked to walk 100 miles in a week, uh, for which cause would you walk and why? You know, the alternate phrasing of your question as to you know, what, what drives me uh, is uh, I really am driven to make a difference and to make some sort of contribution uh, while I'm still around. I view myself as now entering the final third of my career, and I still have a lot a lot to accomplish, a lot to give. And uh, I expect that uh, most of that will happen uh, in the climate change domain. So, you know, the raising awareness of um, adaptation and resilience uh, would have me walking 100 miles. Um, we talked about sustainability. Sustainability is also very important for me, and and I um, definitely can relate with how you define it. Um, in for my organization, the sustainable development goals are very important. Um, you know, it's not perfect, but at least it's it's what we have. It's what we agreed upon as a world that we aim for these goals. Um, we are only at fifteen percent on average uh, in terms of reaching those goals. Um, now, yeah, I, I, I've then come across a growing group of people that says, you know, one of the reasons that we are not making the progress that we need to make is that uh, we are not paying attention to uh, the ability, skills, and knowledge that we need as individuals and as communities to make those system changes work. And, and they came up with the inner development goals. I have two Quick questions. I, I know this. I understand this is, you know, we could talk hours about this. Yes. Um, but the two questions are, what would you like my audience to know about the sustainable development goals? And then the second part is, have you heard about the inner development goals and what are your initial thoughts? Sure. So uh, in brief, uh, I'll just pick up what you said about the sustainable development goals. They're certainly not perfect. And when those of us who sat down to develop the SDGs, and I was among those who participated in the, the open process to develop the SDGs, uh, if you would have asked anyone uh, if they thought we would have ended up with 17 uh, goals, uh, everyone would have thought you were crazy. Uh, and so we ended up with crazy. Uh, it's just very unwieldy and um, you know far from ideal. But uh, when you dig below the number 17 and you look at the approach, as I have, because 
that study, that ongoing study that I mentioned earlier about sustainability policy in the Netherlands, Germany, and the UK, what I'm actually looking at more specifically is how those three countries are aligning with the SDGs. And so obviously, based on that now, you understand that I think the SDGs are fundamentally important because they lay out uh, an approach that is known as governing by goals. Uh, so we have 17 goals. And the way the goals are laid out, uh, the understanding is that each country can attempt in its own way to achieve each of those 17 goals. I can go on and on about the SDGs because that literally is my dissertation <laughs> topic, but I was glad that you pointed me to the inner development goals uh, for a few reasons. First of all, I I, I did take a look at them. Uh, I, I think it's, um, I think they're onto something. Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, it, it is, uh, related to one of the challenges in implementing the SDGs is that there's a lack of capacity and there's a lack of education and the lack of capacity, when dealing with the lack of capacity, it's not just formal education in the classroom, it's you know, the, the, I think you uh, were talking about knowledge, skills, and attributes, the KSAs, which are pretty uh, well-known, uh, well-known framework in, for example, sustainability and higher education, which is another one of my uh, domains. So uh, I, in looking at uh, the different uh, categories uh, that the inner development goals identified. Um, and I really wasn't able to go further into looking at any results of any act of their activities. But, you know, I, I certainly am going to take a closer look to at, um, at the uh, categorizations that they established, because I think they're valid. Okay. Um, one, one of the things that I hope um, to contribute to because I, th I think in the world we have a lot of polarization and if we would you know work on you know our empathic skills you know relating collaborating that will definitely help us to move forward so i hope that this podcast is contributing to connecting people and that they realize oh you know we we initially thought that we would we were very different from this person but there are some things that make sense and you know let's try to start this conversation so i i've I've rolled it into a question, and and that is, I always have a question from the previous guest, um, you know, for the the, the current uh, guest. And the question for you is, I think it's you know we've talked quite a bit about it, of course, not surprisingly, when it comes to twenty nine k and IDGs, but um, I would flip it then to really want to ask the next guest on what qualities, abilities, or skills uh, do they believe uh, uh, we need to develop to change our trajectory and to start to build a more sustainable and regenerative future for people and planet? And I think with that, I would add, um, if you could imagine a place where we together can learn and develop these qualities, abilities, and skills, what would that place or places 
look like and how could we ensure access for all? Well, and I understand, you know, you could start telling me about your PhD, but okay, uh, within a minute. I, I'll, <laughs> uh, I'll take it in a different direction. And, okay. Um, you know, uh, th this, of course, is not an easy question uh, to answer. It's the the question of our of our times, uh, because the litany of challenges that you just uh, listed, uh, taken together, you know, we have to concede that the situation is a polycrisis, and. Uh, there are no easy answers in dealing with a poly crisis or wicked problems individually like climate change. By definition, wicked problems are very difficult to uh, resolve. Uh, and so, you know, my overall take on the poly crisis and the panoply of issues that we're facing, you know, there are a lot of people who are in serious uh, psychological distress uh, these days and giving up, uh, you know, even just from concerns about climate change uh, without even getting into the, the full litany that uh, you shared. Uh, I guess with my background, I come at it from the perspective of wondering whether we're going to be able to develop the the policies and uh, construct the the new institutions uh, that are going to be needed to deal with the poly crisis because it's it's pretty clear that what we have now is not adequate uh, and it's also pretty clear that most folks are not great at visualizing the future particularly in uncertain uh, times so um, dealing with that I think is uh, uh, going to be a challenge, but I do have one uh, recommended approach, uh, and uh, there are people experimenting in a variety of different ways already, not necessarily in response to taking a step or two back and saying, we're in a poly crisis, so we're going to go do something different, but uh, in what what I have been um, reviewing, uh, and I think that there is a great potential in scaling up, is the whole question of intentional communities. I don't know if you or your listeners have ever come across that term before, but basically intentional communities are uh, of many different types. Uh, the most familiar um, to American ears would be eco-villages. Uh, the most familiar to uh, those in Europe might be transition towns. And, you know, what all these intentional communities have in common is that they're a different way of setting up uh, governing and social structures. And if what I believe is if we could pilot a range of different intentional communities, uh, the ones that are successful could then be templates for scaling up. 
And if the goal of an intentional community is to more effectively deal with a poly crisis by implementing different policies and different institutions, that's how I think we can start to make some progress on that. Um, I actually would like to have the opportunity to prove that in the context of some of my work. So I have been giving that uh, a great deal of thought. Your question for the next guest. I'm going to steal uh, something that I saw from uh, other possibilities where we might have gone today uh, and combine it with some of my answers. So uh, if for the next guest, if you took a step or two back and evaluated the current uh, situation at the global, national, and local level, is there one particular song you would um, suggest um, paying attention to the lyrics uh, to help us get through these difficult times? And um, I, I will say that, um, in case you want to know, uh, I saw that there was a possibility that you might ask me that question. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always asking, a, you know, the question of, is there a song or a piece of music that embodies for a big part what Ira, what you are about, you know, and which song or piece of music would that be and why? Well, I can answer that for you now in case you want to use it i yeah. i didn't know whether you were skipping that or 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 not but uh i i i gave a fair amount of thought to that and i didn't go with a, a contemporary piece uh, uh and it may sound a little uh odd to you and your listeners but i came up with the song from the movie casablanca mm -hmm. Uh, as time goes by. And why would I come up with that? Well, I went back and I looked at the lyrics and, you know, there's certainly a lot to like uh, in those lyrics. Uh, it's a romantic song, but for me, that song is evocative of an era that is a kind of mirror image of today uh, where most of Europe was... Uh, faced facing down fascism. Uh, that was really the theme of the movie. Uh, and as as time goes by, uh, the lyrics get into fundamentals like love and hate and jealousy. Uh, and in extrapolating that to my own work in the climate change space, the lines that mean something to me and maybe not to anybody else, a fight for love and glory, a case of do or die. Uh, and I think our work in climate change now is a case of do or die. You know, these conversations always go, go fast. So I would like to thank you for your willingness to talk with me today, for everything you do. Um, yeah, and maybe any question that I should have asked you, but I didn't. 
uh, today. Uh, I'm just glad there weren't more questions because now I have to go get a drink and recover. <laughs> okay. But, thank you. Thank I, you so I much. Enjoyed, I, I enjoyed it. I, you know, I, it, 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 your, your questions got me thinking and I, I hope that, um, you know, you and your audience will get something out of the, the final cut. I, I, well, I did, I did. And I'm sure the listeners as well. So thank you so much. And, and good luck with, well, everything you do, of course. So. Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.